everybody. I'm Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet, joined by Ken Weed from Sportsnet. Together we are Kenny and Rennie, and this is the long-form Kenny and Rennie show, and one we are so absolutely excited about. Uh, we, we had talked about Kevin Bieksa as being our white whale that we were trying to get on the show for so long, Ken. Uh, and and Sheldon Kennedy was right there. There's there's two Moby Dicks in the ocean, everybody. The, uh, the white whale that we've been trying to get on the show for a while, we've locked it down. We're so excited uh, to have uh, such a prominent figure in the hockey community and a fellow Manitoban, uh, at least from where he started from, joining us. Uh, I know some people are excited for us to be back. It's been a while since we've been doing this. You can see J Julie Sue's joined us right off the bat. So it's shove over. She's taken a seat at the table. Great to see her and Kenny's water bottle, who's been harassing us about getting this show back up and running, <laughs> uh, is here as well. Great to see everybody. Uh, we are so looking forward to this. Uh, we're going to bring Sheldon in right away. Ken, I just wanted to say hi. It's always good to see you. Uh, I've been seeing you over uh, the computer mostly lately. Looks like you are there for the Jets game tonight, and you're not in front of a T-Bird for the first time in a long time. How are things That's going right. Things are fantastic. Yeah, I had a great time in Arizona. We got the rental property sold and uh, enjoyed a little bit of the nice weather and uh, nice to be out on the road uh, for a Jets road trip. Uh, pulled the old F apparel suit out of the closet. Nice to nice to get it on, uh, getting some air miles uh, for that as well. Uh, and yeah, no, definitely looking forward to chatting with Sheldon here. Is it going to be a fun road trip? I mean, Nate Schmidt saying this morning they're going to have a pretty good idea of where things stand at the end of this trip and it's an important one for them obviously they're seven points out and needing some help uh in order to see if they can stick around we've got the trade deadline around the corner and it'll be interesting to see if they can try to build on that game against the tampa bay lightning because those last uh, 40 minutes were pretty impressive uh, the first 20 minutes were uh, a bit of that high event hockey we often talk about but uh, fun time of the year we know and uh definitely a great day for a chat with a fellow manitoban that's for sure no doubt. Now, Ken, uh, I know we like like to talk about this lots when it comes to the Jets. I'll probably ask Ken, uh, Sheldon this because he spent some time in the league. It's probably a good question to ask him. But we always make so much of the Jets pregame skates. And, you know, when it's quiet out there, sometimes we'll say it sounds like a library out there. I think we're both of the, uh, the feeling that healthy teams are loud, boisterous teams. The Jets have not been that for long stretches of the year but from the pictures i was seeing looks like they were having a lot of fun on the ice tomorrow did the pictures match the mood from what you saw yeah joy level was high uh, this morning at the prudential center no doubt about that uh, it was interesting uh, mike mcintyre walked in and i walked into the building and uh, noticed that eric comrie was the first goalie on the ice now that's not uncommon for him to be first but uh, then he started to go into a little bit more of the shooting routine, and I'm like, I did speculate in my column uh, on Wednesday morning that it might be a nice time to get Connor Hellebuck an extra day of, of rest here going into the back-to-back. -back. Uh, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a tie-in and a tug with Eric Comrie spending some time with the New Jersey Devils, so it's a good chance for him to face a team that he spent a little bit of time with. And also, too, it gets Hellebuck an extra day of rest. We know it's five consecutive uh, games with four goals or more allowed. Uh, he's played... Uh, 47 I think he's had 48 starts in the 57 games so it's a good time to get him a break and it's a good chance for Eric Comer to play again but yeah the joy level was a little bit higher they're a little bit more upbeat and uh, we'll see if that translates uh, in onto the ice here this evening well you know how I feel about that topic so does the chat room so I'm not even going to launch into it uh let's just <laughs> launch into what we want to do indeed get into a uh, conversation with Sheldon Kennedy who are so happy to bring on to the show Sheldon how are you doing my friend yeah, pretty good. How are you guys doing? We're doing awesome. really good. Really good. Uh, I've had the... We, uh, we, we did it! 
<laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, we pulled her together. We pulled her together. You know what? Honestly, it's 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 led to a big tease because we've been talking about you being on for our audience for a long time, and they're kind of tapping us on the shoulder while we do we do live shows after the Jets games. And every once in a while, they'll be like, "When's Sheldon coming on? When's Sheldon coming on?" So it's great to get to this point. We're so excited to talk with you. I've had some. Uh, I know Ken and you go way back and have had plenty of conversations. I've had the uh, the joy of meeting you on numerous occasions and and uh, talking with you. Uh, it's three Manitoba boys sitting down here having a conversation. I'm interested in uh, since you know we're all kind of rural boys. I know you haven't lived in Manitoba for a while. You've been out west, but I'm interested as a Manitoban. What part of Manitoba kind of remains with you throughout your life after since you've left? Friendly Manitoba. Hey, that's kind of what remains. I mean, my whole family's there, so I'm back there a lot. I mean, my mom's in Verdon, my sister, well, my sister and her husband, uh, they're in Poland half of the year. They're over there right now. So there's lots going on, as we all know, uh, over there. But uh, they spend uh, um, half the year in Oak Lake. And uh, my two nephews are paramedic firefighters in uh in uh, Winnipeg, and and my brother and and his daughter and wife live in Beaujolais. So uh, we're very connected to Manitoba still, but uh, you know it's always friendly Manitoba. I mean, anybody we ever meet from that province is, uh, you know, just we'll reach out and say hi, and and it's an easy 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 conversation to have. We'll get into the difficult or the, the the more important topics later on. But Sheldon, just in terms of the love for hockey, I mean, growing up in, in a small town, uh, when how did it become your passion? And you know, how about the pursuit of that dream? And maybe just let us know how that unfolded a little bit for you. You bet. Well, I mean, we grew up on a dairy farm, so you know, we milked cow, cows, went to school, played hockey in the winter, and baseball in the summer. I mean, that was basically our life growing up. But uh, I don't know. I don't. You know, I. I mean. We played road hockey. We played underneath the lights. Um, I, I always played a year ahead, uh, above above my age group with my brother's team because we could only travel to one to one team. But you know, we had a good team for r- rural Manitoba, coming out of Elkhorn, Manitoba, and and uh, we had some surrounding towns in there: Minneota, um, Oak Lake, Jason Taylor. I mean, we we had a we had a good squad and. And uh, I was never the best player on my team, but I guess, you know, there's scouts that come and they want to have you part of their list at that time. So I think the first time uh, my brother and I, uh, we realized that, you know, maybe um, we had a chance to maybe play junior hockey. Uh, you know, we were traded for the first time from the Winnipeg Warriors to, uh, or sorry, from the Brandon Weekings to the Winnipeg Warriors for uh, a guy named Randy Cameron. And I can't remember who the other guy was, but uh, um, my brother went up and played a couple games with the Winnipeg Warriors at that time. Uh, you know, so it just, you know, I think it just kind of happened. I, I always dreamt to be a farmer, but, uh, um, you know, I guess the hockey thing just kind of happened and, and I just kind of went along and followed what the older kids were doing. But I think it was just a matter of playing so much hockey. Like we'd play three games in a tournament in a day and then go out and play road hockey till midnight. So uh, that's that's what I remember. And then we met Graham James. Yeah, <laughs> Things yeah. changed. 
Um, Sh- Sheldon, I, I, there's a bunch of different directions I want to take that, but I'm glad you brought up your brother, Troy. Uh, so I come from a small town called Lactavani, which is about oh, a yeah. mile away from Bozier. You know that actually, I and I have talked about you making your way to Lactavani before. That's where I'm from. I played for the Lactavani Blues senior team for about 15 years. So I clashed for a number of years with your brother, Troy, who played for the Bozier Beavers at the time that I was there. I've always been kind of fascinated because we're in that league. We're in that senior league where everyone's telling the story about how they could have made it right you made it I, I i'm interested in the dynamic between brothers between siblings who are both good at hockey and one takes it all the way and the other one doesn't make it there what's that dynamic like i, I mean is is there and, and i don't want to take this in a negative uh, uh direction but is there jealousy is is there support how does it work how do you cheer on your brother who didn't quite make it as far as you did how does he cheer you on knowing maybe you got to a place that he was never able to get to yeah you bet i uh i remember lock the bonnie where you could slide down the rocks there's a place yeah. to go down the hey old Pinwa. Old Pinwa. Pinwa down. Old that's, Pinwa right. down. that's the one um, <laughs> well you know it's interesting i you know i get asked kind of questions about you know, I guess, I guess what you would call maybe the normal growing up of, uh, in the hockey world. And, and I just, I have a hard time relating to that. I think, you know, I left home at a very, very young age and my brother and I left home at the same time to go play in Moose Jaw. Um, I played my first game in the Western Hockey League at 15. My brother had played a few games at 16, quite a few games, maybe half the year. And, uh, you know, I never ever felt any jealousy. I think that uh, what what was going on in my life when I left home um, really made me disconnected from uh, family. I mean, and everybody basically. And and uh, so, you know, I, I basically had to cheer on my brother and my sister. My sister was a professional figure skater. I mean, she she skated her whole life uh, as a very high level pair skater with her husband uh, in Europe. So, you know, it was something that we cheered on. We always cheered on. And I think if we look at the cornerstone of who kept us connected, because we were all over the world was my mom. And my mom, you know, we always, we always were all over because she carried around that video camera, you know, those high eights, and you couldn't look at her without having that thing on you. So, you know, we're like, would you put that thing down? And now when we go home to visit and we sit down, it's like, hey, where's that tape of this? Remember that? Remember this? So, you know, I think that it's been the last few years that have we've really kind of come together and as a as a as siblings i think to really discuss and i guess um you know look back on maybe where we've been and it just it's unfortunate and i it's unfortunate i think that you know you know those are some of the losses that one takes is your ability to love the game and be connected with those that you love and that's what happens and and i think you know, with me, it's very hard to to tell those stories, Sean. Like I think most people expect to have uh, in a mm-hmm. in a situation like that, uh, and it's not a you know, I mean, it's not that it impacts me today, but it's just when I re- reflect back, um, it's just a different path that my life took than probably most others that would have been in that position. Yeah, for, I mean, for sure, leaving home at that age. I mean, Sheldon. Like- do you give advice to young, you know, their kids at a young age in hockey? They got to make decisions. They want to go to college. They want to go to the Western League. I mean, how does your experience impact the way that you kind of share advice for for folks in that situation? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know if I give, you know, like, I don't know if I, I don't really spend my life trying to give people advice, but I think as far as if I could give advice, I think if, if what we try to do in, is build a confidence and a knowledge around all forms of abuse, bullying, harassment, discrimination, and I think our best defense is knowledge. Like as a parent, uh, as a parent myself, I have a three-year-old son who, you know, we're going through it again. I have a 26-year-old daughter and I'll tell you, I wasn't at my best uh, as I was trying to get my own life together when she was born. But, uh, you know, I get a second chance here to, to pay attention with Lachlan and, and to be, to be, you know, to be in a better spot. And, and I think, you know, if I could give any advice, I mean, not just for the, the kids that, you know, have a chance to play, I mean, but as parents, just, just, you know, do your homework. You know, pay attention. I mean, our best defense towards issues such as and and you know the individuals such as Graham James uh, that are out there and and you know and even just mental health issues. I mean, our best defense is knowledge, and uh, the more we can educate ourselves uh, in this space, the the better we're going to be as individuals, not only for ourselves and and uh, our family members, but also those around us. And I think that's you know that's got to be the key and. You know, I think just to me, do a gut check. If your gut's telling you something's up um, or it's maybe not the right decision to leave home at such a young age, listen to your listen to your gut. Uh, I think we're going to be tried to be we're going to be sold to to leave home. We're going to be sold in many, many ways uh, as a young person. If you have talent in any sport uh, that you need to do this and you need to do that, and you need to do this. And I think, you know, one thing if I can give advice is if you're good enough to make it, you're going to make it. And I think, you know, take care of your well-being and what's important to you as a family uh, and your education to be number one. Sheldon, we're going to drill down deeper into a lot of the issues you were just talking about. Something you touched on that I wanted to ask, though, I'm going to back up to about a question ago, is the idea of your family kind of being one of the things that was taken from you with all that happened to the Graham James situation. And I wonder through your process of kind of, you know, rebuilding your life from, from where you came from, how you go about, or if it's been a concerted effort for you to go about getting that back? Well, I mean, I think like, you know, anytime we do any work, like anybody has to do any work and around their mental mental health or mental well-being. And I mean, basically I didn't really understand the impact that um, what it, happened to me in my life as a young kid uh, was going to have. We know more today. We know a lot more today about the impact of trauma and the impact on the, um, um, you know, the, the, the developing brain of a, of a young child when they're living in sustained traumatic uh, experiences. I mean, we know that it changes the makeup of the brain. We know that. And, you know, I think for me, I mean, you know, something that I was very much ashamed of my whole life is coming from a small town where most people were proud that Sheldon made it to the NHL. And, you know, I'm making headlines for going into a treatment center or going into a psych ward or going into a mental health hospital and, you know, basically all of the above. I mean, that, you know, we look at the incident that happened, like we look at, you know, yes, there's the physical incident that that happened to me and, and others, many others. Uh, from Graham James, but what happened is, is that set sets that set me up to live a certain way, to run from my feelings and confusion and self hate, uh, 
and which hurt a lot of people. So, you know, in the, in the healing process, it's, it's, it's not just dealing with the sexual abuse that happened to me. It was dealing with, you know, everything else that the way I was living my life to run from the, what happened to me, um, I impacted a lot of people too. So, you know, I think it's like going to the gym, you know, it, you don't go into the gym one time and boom, you're, you got a six pack and you're fit and you can run a mile and a half in eight minutes. Like, you know, it's, it's time and it takes practice. And I think that, you know, any work that we, we do and that we set out to do, um, and for me to become better uh, as a person and to move beyond the pain and the impact that I was, you know, uh, fighting and uh, trying to hope went away for the most of my life, it's, it's got to take a daily commitment and practice. And today I'm in a way better spot, but I, you know, I practice, I know two or three things you know, on a daily basis, exercise is important for me. And, and uh, one thing that I always remember is that, you know, if, if there's something in my head that's consuming me, uh, you know, the longer I don't uh, address it, the, the bigger problem it's going to become. So I've learned to practice to be honest about that feeling, whatever it might be uh, with somebody. And as soon as I can, you know, uh, share that feeling with somebody, it loses all its power. And I keep that at front front and center of uh, my thoughts because it's it's a big thing for me. I can, you know, get very consumed with, you know, self-hate, self-doubt and, uh, uh, and, and suicidal thoughts, lots. That's just the reality. That's how I've been programmed because of what went on in my life. I know that. And but it doesn't have to control your life. I mean, there's lots of people living in good recovery. And that's what I want to talk about is like, you know, how do you get out of it? You know, we hear so many stories of people, you know, having terrible things happen to them in their life. But we don't hear too many stories about people living in good recovery and what it takes. And and I think we need to hear more of those stories because that's what we need. We need to give people hope that they can get their life back, whatever they've gone through. And I think, um, you know, hopefully that is that's come coming through clear uh you know in 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 my journey for for who's ever watching do you feel like the the stigma attached to mental health and awareness is sort of being chipped away and moving in a positive direction and what's it going to take to to make that more front and center and and to have it take them on more of a prominent and positive role in those recoveries yeah i think you know for sure ken and i think we're so much farther ahead than where we were i mean it's been 25 years since my story broke and and, uh, you know, I remember trying to, you know, I mean, the conversation was so different back then than it is today. And I think, you know, there's many reasons for that. I mean, we're, we are having a societal shift. I think that, uh, um, you know, the, the media have, have done a great job, I think, over the many, many years of telling the story, that stories have been different. I think we're all educating ourselves. I believe that mental health across our country needs a focus, more of a focus. And, and a very, uh, and I say focus that, uh, and I mean, you know, we need a, uh, um, a, uh, uh, an integrated approach is, is what I'm saying. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, great intention, uh, but what I've learned about um, shifting systems and what I've learned about, um, you know, making significant social change in, in, in areas that carry a lot of fear is that we have to be very clear 
on exactly what we're trying to do. And I think that, uh, you know, mental health right now, we, we ask people to tell and we tell and we tell and talk, talk, talk. But I think the problem is, is that a lot of times right now, people are reaching out to get help and the systems aren't able to respond to that. And I think that, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we can respond to those that are that we tell to reach out. And, uh, and I think that that needs to be a focus. Uh, that's something that you know we, we work, we're working on across the country and and uh, but I think I think we've come a long ways. I don't want to you know dismiss the fact that um, there's been a lot of progress. I just think that these issues are continually moving. They're continually uh, changing as we learn more about them and uh, we have to be nimble and quick like that too as a system. Sheldon, I want to go back to the moment where you decided to to go public with your story. I mean, I don't think I'm being, I think I've heard you say in the past, it's it's saved your life, right? Coming out and talking about this as part of the process, acknowledging it. Like you said, the conversation was a lot different back then than it is now. Um, So I I think you would have a very, you know, deep understanding of what people who are struggling with something, something, when they come to that moment, uh, when it comes to a head of whether or not they're going to, you know, come out with their story or not, I, I wonder if you could take us back to that moment and some of the things that you struggled with. I'm assuming it took a lot of self-talk, but that moment when you finally kind of decided, "This is it. I'm doing this." What was that moment like, and what did it take for you to get there? Yeah. Well, I think that's an important that's important part for for anybody that's struggling with you know, uh, you know, any type of, um, you know, mental struggles, emotional struggles is, is, you know, how do we make that call? How do we actually reach our hand out and ask for help? And that's, or, you know, the phone's 10,000 pounds, right? And, uh, but for me, I was, uh, you know, I was in Detroit and, uh, you know, obviously I, you know, weighed out my welcome there and, and uh, got traded to Winnipeg, and then I was picked up on waivers from from the Jets, uh, from the uh, to the Flames, from the Jets. And uh, and when I came to Calgary, Graham James uh, was own oh, was part owner and the coach and general manager of the uh, Calgary Hitmen. So when I was coming out of the locker room at the time, my my life was absolutely a train wreck. I was having a harder and harder time as years went on to. Um, to hold in just you know just keep it together i was i was uh you know you know alcohol was uh rampant in my life and uh yeah i was struggling big time and uh anyway i came out of the locker room and and on you know a few different occasions and uh you know i'd see graham james there and he was with three other young players uh with the hitman and you know waiting to talk and and to me and and uh, introduced me to these young players and then at the time my wife was uh, pregnant with our daughter ryan so I, I would come out of the locker room and i would look at these two scenarios and one is you know i would look at my wife and my daughter and i'd say well i never i will never be who i want to be and who i can be if i don't address the way i feel and i couldn't even put a finger on the way i feel all i know all i knew at that time is that I was so confused and, and just my head was consumed with suicide and just, it was just, it was, it's hard to explain because I, I couldn't, I'd never heard about sexual abuse before in my life. And uh, it was very difficult to, to try to understand, to, 
to tell anybody because I was having a hard time even trying to explain it to anybody. So that was one scenario. And I'd look at look to look to my left, and I'd see Graham James there with these three kids, and I'm thinking I have to do something because I know what's going on here. And I went home, and I I went home, and I and I told my wife at the time, Jana. I said, you know, I got to tell you something. This is, and I all she said was, I believe you. That was it. That's all she said when I told her is I believe you. And those were the biggest words that I could have ever heard because I spent my whole life thinking that nobody's who who is going to believe this drunk, wild, out of control kid. Right. And that's the way I was. That's the way I was painted by Graham. And that's the way I was living. I was living up to those expectations. And uh, and I, you know, I just felt that I was. You know, I was so isolated, and that's one of the techniques that you know the perpetrators use, or any abuse abuser uses, is to isolate. And uh, um, you know, so I felt that I was the only one this had ever happened to. But uh, I needed to tell somebody, so I went to the police, and 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 I told them, and and it kind of took its own course from there. But uh, you know, I think one of the things that I need to make sure I I tell people is that you know when you disclose your story. Uh, or a bad guy goes to jail or whatever it might be, um, you know, it's not over, it's just beginning. Um, you know, it, it, all the work uh, that you need to do to get out of it is is going to be in front of you. And, uh, and that took a long time for me. What was the reaction of, you know, teammates and friends? I mean, because of the stature that Graham had in the, in the hockey business and because the culture is so insular at times? Yeah. Well, I mean, my... You know, I think, I mean, the, the reaction by the players was really good. Um, you know, and I think that most of them probably had a really hard time understanding it. I mean, Dean Evison, my cousin, uh, friend, Manitoba, Manitoban, I mean, Dino was, you know, was there, you know, and others. And, uh, um, and you know, they were compassionate and, and that's all they needed to be. I think as the leadership group um, had a really hard time uh, trying to understand what to do and to have this disclosure in front of them. Um, you know, I was sent to a hypnotist. Like, you know, it's just at that time, like we did, nobody knew how to handle this stuff. And I think it was just make it go away. And uh, so, you know, uh, I guess for me, I, I just, you know, I tried to finish out that season after disclosure, the, the investigation was going on and, you know, I, I took, you know, most two or three months at the start of the season, the next season I'd signed in Boston, but the reaction, like when my story broke was, you know, it was huge. I mean, you know, it was newsmaker of the year in 1997 and, and I don't want to say huge, like, wow, like, but it was way different than I would have ever thought. And I was, you know, we were consumed with disclosures from people writing letters, like tens of thousands of letters were coming to us explain from all over the world, um, you know, telling us their story. And one of the things that really connected and hit me was that, you know, the stories were different, the time, the place, the gender, was different, but the impact was very consistent. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, coming back to the question, Ken, is that, you know, I think there was a lot of compassion on an individual 
level. But at that time, I think that systems and organizations and society did not know how to deal with a disclosure of this magnitude uh, in the in the level of, uh, you know, in the game at that time, or even, you know, in any uh, organization that would have the statue of hockey in, in, in Canada, right? It's not just hockey. I think it would happen in any any. You talk about that being the the news story of the year. Shortly after that, you did your cross country um, uh, inline skating tour, and I remember thinking at the time. I mean, one, it was so courageous what you'd done, but it felt to me like, boy, oh boy, that was a big task to take on. Never mind the physicality of doing something like that. But we knew from, you know, what we'd seen Terry Fox do when he was running across the country, that you'd be going through communities, you'd be meeting with people, people would be telling you those stories. I remember thinking you were taken on a lot at that time, and it could be pretty heavy. When you look back on that, was was that something that added to your burden at times? Or was that therapeutic? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I know one thing is that, you know, I just really underestimated the impact of vicarious trauma and listening to disclosure after disclosure after disclosure. And I really had not, I really didn't understand the skill of listening and understanding my role of how I could best help. I mean, I took people's pain on and I wanted to fix people. So I think in that sense, uh, Sean, um, yeah, it had a huge impact uh, on me. Uh, on the other side of it, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish, and that was to give a platform to bring a voice to an issue that has never had a voice before. And, you know, we didn't have, we had very, very little sponsorship. No one wanted to get involved, but it was it was basically a people's tour. And we, we raised, you know, we raised a good amount of money. I think we were able to donate 1.7 million to the Red Cross. And that was basically raised on loonies and toonies from people. But I can tell you that the conversations and the masses of people that came out, it was uh, it was significant. And, you know, I mean, but I think it goes to show back to my earlier point is that just because we disclosed, and that's what I learned, just because I disclosed, it doesn't mean it's over. I mean, I was in treatment two more times after the rollerblade just to get to a place where I can actually find some, some, some form of reprieve from, um, you know, the mental anguish that was going on in my head. You know, I mean, I'm 18 years, you know, in, in recovery now, but I, but I think I really learned a lot after that. And, and I learned, uh, and I can share that advice to people, you know, anybody that's coming out that want to do this work and we see it time and time and time again, you have to take care of yourself. And if you do not take care of yourself doing this kind of work, um, it's gonna get you. And it got me. And, uh, you know, and I think that I've never made a decision to say this is what I'm gonna do. It, it, the people have just kept bringing me back to ask me to help and, and help. Can you help me here? Can you help our organization? Can you come do this? Can you do that? And I think that it's just evolved uh, I don't think I've ever made a conscious decision to say this is what I'm going to do. But, you know, here I am today. And, and you know, I, I, uh, I think the best thing that I could have done and that I continue to do every day is take care of myself 
and uh, you know, live in recovery because you know I'm no good to anybody uh, if I'm not healthy myself. And 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 that's been my motto. And you know, we need to show people that there is a way out. We can't just tell them. And you know, and I think that we need to walk the walk. And I think that you know. I try to do that the best I can, and I try to show up for people that, you know, that need help. But I also have learned that it's important to say no. You know, I understand that I can't help everybody, but uh, I can give them the information that they may need to, to receive help from a professional organization. How would you describe the bond that comes with having kind of shared experiences and having people feel comfortable sharing those things with you? Well, I think it's a, I think it's important. Um, because I think that unless somebody's been through a situation themselves that um, has impacted them, you know, have been impacted by trauma one way or another, I mean, it's very hard for them to really understand. And I think, you know, basically we're dealing with the invisible, right? And uh, so I think it's important. I think it's important. But I also think it's important to have conversations to find solutions. I'm very much a very much into solution like and and I'm very much into letting people know that if you want to get out of uh, this you know I kept standing sitting waiting around for the doctors to fix me and uh, you know because I think that's just how we grow up like I mean you go you know you're hurting you get you go to the doctor you and you know you psychiatrist psychologist or whatever it is and they want to fix you and I I've had to I've had to realize that nobody's fixing me other than me. I have to do the work. I mean, I can be guided by professionals, but I have to do the work. And uh, and I pass that on to people. And I think, you know, it's sometimes people don't want to hear it, but um, it's what they need to hear. And I think that, you know, my whole focus is to get people to a place where they actually start feeling good about themselves again. Because, and I know it's, I know it's, you know, I know it's doable because, you know, I see it all the time and, and I know what it takes to get there. And, and to me, I don't think people believe that it's possible. And I think that, um, you know, I want to try to give them that hope and try to give them the basic tools to uh, allow them to get to that place too. Because I think the more champions we can get on finding a way out of that anguish and that desperate place, uh, the more... Um, you know, the, the, the more power we're going to have in our communities to help others. Sheldon, I'm trying to think about similar figures to you in the news over the years, and I can't come up with a lot, but one parallel, I think it makes a ton of sense that you did the inline trip across the country because what you've gone through reminds me of Terry Fox, going through something absolutely terrible and, and the strength that you show in, in facing up to it is is really, I think, what changed everything and, and set this path that, that you've kind of navigated uh, and people have followed and that people, I think, draw strength from the strength that you show. Now, this conversation we're having makes it clear behind the scenes. I mean, you've struggled and you've had struggles of your own. But to your point of when you were in line skating and people were coming up and telling you their stories and that has continued on ever since throughout your life. Being the face of, of something, I'm sure there's a ton of pride of, from what you have accomplished over the years. And being the face of that movement, I'm sure has saved thousands, if not millions of lives across the world. But what's the pressure that comes with being the face of something like this for as long as you have been? Uh, 
Well, I mean, you know, that's a good question, Sean. I think I, I do feel, sometimes I feel pressure, but sometimes I feel it's a little bit of a gift. Sometimes I want to run and hide. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not run and hide in a bad way. I just think that, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I, I think one of the things that's very much underestimated, I believe, in in this area is the magnitude of, of how much it happens and how many people have been impacted. So, you know, I don't, I barely, barely go a day without, you know, hearing a disclosure or getting a phone call to ask if, if, you know, I can help somebody get connected to a treatment center or, and it's, that's all my volunteer work. Like, you know, the majority of the work that I do in this space, other than our work with respect group, I mean, you know, speaking and stuff like that, I very rarely ever, uh, it's not how I make my living. You know, this is volunteer work and it's, I want to give back. And, you know, one of the things that I feel proud about is the Child Advocacy Centre and being able to shift systems. And, you know, we've been able to bring, you know, all the government systems together uh, in, in the province of Alberta and change legislation to allow for information sharing amongst the, the organizations. And, uh, you know, that's police, justice, health, child and family. And uh, we're, we are absolutely changing outcomes for kids and their families. And we do every child abuse investigation there is uh, in Southern Alberta. And now we have, we just announced the opening of a building on the Polytechnic uh, campus in Red Deer College. So the, uh, you know, it's exciting. I love doing that work. Um, but, you know, I think, Sean, it's, it's, again, it comes back to being humble, you know, staying grounded, um and and staying healthy you know i have to stay healthy emotionally i've had to learn how to say no i i think i struggled with that and you know i said yes there was a time when i did over 300 keynote addresses uh per year uh um with an audience over 200 people that doesn't include all the school meetings all the government meetings all the you know and it, it that took its toll so i've had to learn from that but you know we got a lot done and i think sometimes when the when the iron's hot you gotta you, you gotta cook right you got a brand and uh you know so the iron was hot for a few years there and and i think that you know we were going but it, you know i've definitely experienced burnout i know that that's real um and i think that covid's been a terrible uh it's been terrible for our country uh, just everything that's gone on with it, um, whatever side of the fence that uh, that you find yourself on, it's just been a, been a it's it's brought a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress with it. But I think the early part of COVID was a blessing in disguise, which allowed me to it gave me an excuse to say no and step back and reset and go about things a little bit differently at a little different pace. And then I think it's been good. And I needed to do that because, you know, I was struggling. I was struggling with uh, just the amount of work that was in front of us and not being very good at saying no. So I think it has its ups and downs, uh, Sean. Uh, you know, uh, I don't consider myself being a hero or I don't think you do this work to be some super figure. Um, I try to do what's right. I think I'm in a position to influence change and to work with those that can make change. And I think that, you know, as long as I keep those things in front of me and close to me, um, you know, we'll be able to keep doing that hopefully for a few more years to come. 
obviously we're trying to help people that are experiencing trauma in all areas, but uh, why is it important to stay involved with hockey, Sheldon? I mean, given, you know, obviously you realized your dream to play in the NHL, but hockey also took a lot of things away from you. Uh, it would have been easy to turn your back, but why was it important to you to, to stay involved and try to help people and, especially, and to work with the NHL on, on this project moving forward? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've been working with, you know, working in the hockey world and other sport organizations and workplaces for, for 25 years. But I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I felt that I could help. And I think I've always come at this, these issues, not to wreck the game of hockey and not come out swinging, screaming, yelling, fighting. But I think that, uh, you know, I needed to be firm. We needed to understand where we were exactly coming from. We needed to know the truth. And once we understand the truth, then we can start moving forward and we can start building a better game. And I think that, you know, obviously the purpose from day one of all of our work uh, has been to um, to make the game better. And I felt that hockey had a is such an influential game, not only in our country, uh, but, you know, also in other countries that it, it had the power to change, change communities and and you know, and better our communities in this space. And, you know, I think if we look at Hockey Canada, I mean, they were the early uh, leaders uh, with the Speak Out program across this country, educating all their coaches. Now it's mandatory for every coach and some prob- some provinces' parents to take the Respect and Sport uh, program. Um, you know, we've educated over 1.8 million uh, Canadians uh, and counting every day. And, you know, I think that... Um, that's influenced we're now we we now educate over 70 uh sport organizations in this country but you know going back to manitoba sport manitoba was one of the early leaders uh in this movement i think over 15 years ago they made it mandatory for every coach in every sport uh to to take this to take pro to take training now is it is it do i live in a panacea to think it's the end all be all no but what i do know is that empowering the bystander if you look at any case you look at the graham james case you look at most cases that happen you know you look at the the kyle beach story you look at others like any case you want to look at there's bystanders that surrounded these cases and i look in the swift current case and i mean are they all terrible bad people no some of them I knew and I knew well, but I think the issues that we're talking about carry a significant amount of fear and lack of clarity on knowing what to do. And I feel that I go back to, um, if we can create a confidence um, by uh, continued learning uh, within organizations, within people that are in front of our kids to empower the bystander, uh, I think that that's our best defense. Now, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we need to keep doing more and we need to keep doing more. But I think that what's happened lately with the NHL has been, you know, if I look at that, how it's all unfolded, you know, it's, it came out very negative, but I think that, uh, and people were hurt. And, uh, you know, but I, I look at situations like that and I think, okay, you know, what are we going to do to learn from this and how are we going to get better? And what are we going to do to make sure that we can be leaders? And I look at the NHL and I think that they have a significant role in uh, uh, showing leadership in this space. And I think that that's been embraced. And, you know, we are we are rolling out um, the respect in the workplace program uh, in the with the league. Um, the Jets, I know I met with uh, Kevin, I met with Mark and 
you know, uh, we had, we've had some great conversations and I, I've said this many times. I mean, Mark was instrumental, uh, in, uh, making, uh, you know, making this happen at the NHL level for everybody. Uh, him and I worked very closely along with, uh, Kim Davis at the NHL level, level, uh, and, and along with Gary and, uh, and his, and his leadership team. So, you know, I'm confident that, uh, you're, we're going to see not just a, a band-aid fix here. I think that, you know, we're here and there's a plan for the long term, but not just for the league itself, but I think also uh, how can they reach down into the community to show great leadership in this space, which I think that they have to do, and that's what we need. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, this is not just a hockey problem, it's a societal problem. And if you look at workplaces across this country, which we have over two 2,000 clients, um, this is now becoming a priority uh, inside their business. I mean, this is this is about a strong business plan. It's not just a policy and a procedure. So, I'm excited about I'm excited about what's what's going to happen and what's coming and and uh, you know and and you know the leadership of the Jets. I mean, I think that uh, um, you know I mean they've they've they were the first out of the gate uh, with this and and. Uh, you know, I mean, they, I mean, just the connections that they're making in their community to be better overall in all of this area, I think is really important. And I think we need to look at that and strengthen that and can continually reach and understand the brand of hockey and how do we create a, you know, a one hockey approach from start to finish. I mean, that's how we get better. Sheldon, I, I don't want to lose the the stuff with with the Jets and Gary Bettman, and uh, I, I think Ken's going to jump on that. But you said something I don't want to lose here in the beginning of that question that I find fascinating. You talked about kind of addressing the game and doing so in a way that you didn't wreck the game of hockey, I think is, is the term that you used before that. I find that fascinating, and here's why. As a young man who was kind of burnt by, you know, maybe the culture of silence that could exist in the game at times, I think that it would be very hard to find the balance as you were trying to address, as you were trying to protect people, as you were trying to change the game, not taking a wrecking ball to the game of hockey in an effort to kind of smash the, the parts of the game that needed to be smashed. I, it seems to me like that would take, uh, you know, a lot of intelligence uh, for a young man uh, to, to go down that road, but like a lot of, a lot of self-control to not, kind of go in with a flamethrower at this situation. How did you know to take it with the balance that you did? Did you get advice on that? Or was that an instinctual feeling that if you went in at the game of hockey too hard that you were just going to turn hockey people off from your message? Um, well, I've had a, you know, my my best friend and business partner and, you know, for the last 25 years, Wayne McNeil has been, uh, you know, been a mentor. and You know, I've had great people in my life that have surrounded me and I've been open-minded enough to listen. But, you know, I've also always taken the approach with, with any type of, I guess, problem is that, you know, you know, let's learn from this and get better and let's take the high road. And, and it's not, you know, I mean, for us to make change in hockey, we got to work with hockey, yeah. right? You can't just swing from the outside and expect things to get done. I mean, we need to work with hockey. And I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, sitting around a board table doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not as honest as we need to be to address the problems at hand. Um, but we also need to, we need, we need to also bring to that table solutions. And I think that, you know, it's not a lack of, 
it's not a lack of willingness to to uh, um, to be better and to learn. I think that uh, again, I think that you know, there's been a lot of teaching over the years of like, you know, this isn't a one-off, right? It's not an isolated case, um, you know, and you know, your people are going to thank you for for bringing this forward and making it a priority over time because there has been a major shift when we first started doing this work it meant if you had a program a prevention program in around any form of abuse bullying harassment discrimination um that meant you had problems and we're not signing up well over the years we've done so much work in schools that these the young people are now parents and they're now volunteer coaches or they now work in a leadership role at a business so they expect that this stuff's in place so it's really been a shift in society as i think that you know you've probably seen and you probably saw from the outpouring in the chicago blackhawks kyle beach case that there's an expectation from a society that we're better in this area and you know now it becomes a recruitment and a retention tool for organizations to look to see how how well we're doing in this area within their organization so you know that's been a shift I think that um, you, you never do this alone. Like I, you know, there's, I've had significant amount of help uh, for, for a long time and uh, you know, and just people helping me. And I think, and, and the willingness of leaders to, to make that courageous decision. I mean, you look at Jeff Natchuk 15 years ago and his group and Janet McMahon at Sport Manitoba and all the, the leaders of each organization just said, we're going to make this mandatory. And, you know, Eric Robinson, who was the, the minister at the time, I mean, they had to make a decision. It's not Sheldon Kennedy making the decision to say this is going to be mandatory in Sport Manitoba for every coach. It was them. And they needed to trust and they needed to believe what we were saying. And I think that, you know, with the data that we're able to collect on what people are telling them, it's like, you know, people want this they want to learn they want to understand that organizations are doing everything that they can to make sure that um that you know they're this not only the safest but the healthiest places they can be now do i live in a panacea to think this is about being perfect absolutely not i think the work we do in this space is about practice we need to practice on a daily basis on a yearly basis with you know ourselves and our organizations and our teams um, to continually get better, and that's uh, you know what I feel is 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 the key, right? But people think they have to be perfect in this space. Uh, I think that we always need to strive to be perfect, but you know, we're never going to get perfect, and we're never going to have a finish line working in this field. Obviously, Kevin or Sheldon, there was a pretty big spotlight on Mark Chipman and Kevin Chevalier off around the Kyle Beach story. Uh, what sense did you get about their commitment level to being part of the change? Which is, I mean. Part of the biggest reason I think that Mark stood beside Kevin is because of their ability to maybe impact the change. What sense do you get from those two in those conversations you've had with them? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know Kevin and I know Mark and uh, we had a, you know, we had a conversation, had a really good conversation with uh, uh, both of them. And, and uh, I can tell you that, you know, um, you know, they they both want to do everything they can to make a difference. And I think that, uh, um, and to learn from, and I think if you look at somebody like in Kevin's position, you know, um, I think that he's getting a chance to, and I've, you know, we've said this to him. I said it on hockey night in Canada. I mean, I think he's got a chance to get this right. And I think that he can be, he can teach many others 
you know, how to be better in this space, learn from what happened uh, and what didn't happen and, uh, and how am I going to be better uh, moving forward? And I think, um, you know, I mean, I think Kevin is, is a, a quiet guy, but I think that, you know, from my conversation with him, um, there's an absolute uh, commitment uh, from him to do everything that, that he, he can to make sure that any team that he's in charge of is uh, making this a priority uh, within that locker room and within that club. And I, and I felt the same from Mark. I mean, I think Mark's a born leader in many, many ways. I think he's shown great leadership uh, within the league on, on many issues, but I think this issue in, in particular, um, um, you know, Mark has, has, uh, um, yeah, I think it's impacted him, as I think you could see from from the press conference, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, there is a commitment from both of them to be the best they can be, not just in Winnipeg, not just with the Winnipeg Jets, but, uh, uh, you know, obviously the province of Manitoba and throughout the league. And so, you know, to me, the proof's in the pudding, you know, um, so far the pudding's been good, right? And, uh, and I believe in my heart that it's going to continue to good. They're good people. And I think that uh, this has been a very difficult situation for both of them. Um, but I believe that, you know, they're both smart enough to learn and understand that uh, um, we can always be better. And the opportunity that's in front of us is we need to be better for, for uh, uh, you know, those that are going to come after us and all those that want to come into the game. This is about growing the game. And, uh, um, you know, we all have to, we all have a part to play in that. Sheldon, if you went back to the Sheldon Kennedy, the version of Sheldon Kennedy that was, you know, lost, hurting, hadn't yet come up with Drinking beer at the Pinawa Dam? There you go. <laughs> I probably saw you there. Um, if you go back to that version of Sheldon Kennedy and he was able to see where you are now and what you have accomplished, what would that Sheldon Kennedy think of you? I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I, you know, I always felt that I, I could be more than what I was when I was fumbling around struggling. And uh, I always felt I was going to get there. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. And, and I don't know what getting there even means. Um, you know, I like, you know, I think the most important thing for me is just, it's about hope. Like I know when, you know, Governor General David Johnson called me and said, Sheldon, we want to induct you into the Order Order of Canada. To me, I think it represents hope. And I think that, you know, me receiving that is not about Sheldon, but it's about the issues. And I hope that it gave everybody, you know, it showed them that there's a way out. And, and I feel... And I think that's kind of, that's probably where I would have the most uh, pride is that, uh, is that I never ever believed that I could shut my head off from the crazy and the self-hate. And I never believed that I could get to that place where I thought as a young kid and my whole career, even though I was, you know, living a certain way, um, and you know being in trouble and in treatment centers and unhealthy even though i was doing that in my head i always knew that wasn't me but i couldn't understand why i kept doing it and uh and to be able to finally get to a place where you know i feel like i 
I feel good about myself. Um, I can, uh, I've got good relationships with those closest to me. Uh, my daughter who's 26, we do a lot of work together on trying to repair that. I mean, if think of that, right? So she's a young kid. Dad's trying to get sober, working through this stuff. She sees dad going to treatment centers all the time. I mean, she's been impacted just from me being impacted. I'm trying to do, you know, trying to, you know, and I'll tell you, you know, as you're climbing out of the, trying to, as you're climbing out of the, the, the uh, recovery tank, um, you know, trying to scratch and claw to get out of it. It's, it's not easy and it's not pretty sometimes. And, you know, again, it's that, you know, it's that wreckage that you leave on your path that people that you've impacted that are closest to you that I, you know, you've got to make those amends, but you know, things that I guess just the gratitude, I think that's what it is, is gratitude that things are happening in my life that I never thought would be happening. And they're just simple, basic things in life, you know, being a father to a three-year-old and being able to just love that little guy, like there's no tomorrow and having strong relationships with my family and friends and showing up, being accountable i was never accountable and uh and to be able to sit and chat with you know kevin and mark and you know and and let's chat about you know what are we going to do to make this better things like that that would have never happened before so for that i have a lot of gratitude we have a lot of gratitude uh, for you investing your time with us sheldon and uh, you're an inspiration to many and we thank you for sharing your thoughts with us and our listeners and viewers as well yeah well thank you ken and sean it was uh thanks for having me on and it was a really good conversation who would have thunk that three friendly manitoba people would have had a conversation like that eh you bet well i gotta say you touched on not only gratitude in your last answer there you touched on some themes about hope and finding a way out i i think in the end that's going to be your legacy i mean i think what you've done is you offered a lot of hope to a lot of people but maybe even more importantly you provided a way out of trauma i think that people didn't know existed before you very publicly went through you went but you went through i think you created a wave that's kind of watched not only across this country but everywhere uh and, and provided an example and like ken said we are so we have so much gratitude for you opening yourself up to us uh it means a ton and i'll say this if you're ever back around lactabani you want to head to old pinawal i'll call ken he'll come up from the city and we'll hold hands and go sliding down that rock <laughs> right on with a root beer <laughs> <laughs> perfect things gotta change but not see you later Sheldon, thank you so much Talk awesome hey everyone appreciate it thank you um wow what's to awesome. say um i know that i had uh um one of the things uh you've had a ton of conversations with sheldon before a few years back we were doing a hometown hockey in swift current and they went there and they released um it was kind of they used it as a release for the documentary swift current which is all about sheldon kennedy's uh struggle that he went through and has gone through since and it's powerful powerful stuff i had the chance to talk to him then um he had, uh, uh, when we were young kids, we were still in high school, he'd ended up, he's talking about being out in Lactabon. He was a buzz, right? Everyone knew that Sheldon Kennedy had been in town. Uh, and I used that opportunity to go and say, because I think my sister had been at a party that he'd been at, and a bunch of my friends, you know, because I'd hang out with older kids, but I wasn't quite old enough to go to that party, um, had been there. Uh, and I, I remember I just thought it was important to go talk to him and say that, you know, not only had he caused like a wave in in 
in town when he came and did that. And clearly that would have been a, a, a tough time for him, right? That would have been when he was going through some of his tough times. But um, just there was always a feeling afterwards with the people who had met him that they were rooting for him, right? Like they, they knew, knew that there was problems. And I think there was a ton of happiness in those people that he'd met that even when he went through the, the time of his life where I'm sure he, you know, created, he talked about creating trauma for not only himself, but for his family and the people around him. I think even when he was going through his lowest times, there was something about him in his character that he created, uh, 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 he was a character that people were rooting for. Uh, and uh, it's so nice to have seen him come out the way that he's come out and accomplish what he's accomplished. I don't know that we've had a more important Kenny and Rennie than this, Ken, but that was phenomenal stuff. Yeah, it was awesome. And yeah, I mean, my my time with Sheldon is limited, but when I was a 15-year-old with dreams of playing in the National Hockey League and was a list player by the Swift Current Broncos, uh, in our scrimmage, Sheldon Kennedy was the player behind my bench. And when I walked into that Swift Current ring for the first time, seeing Joe Sackick and Manitoban Dan Lambert and Sheldon skating, like that that's the stuff where you're looking on the ice and saying you want to be like them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just love the fact that Sheldon's doing such incredible work. And uh, like I said, it would have been easy for him to turn his back on hockey. And to me, it says so much about him as an individual that he still has so much passion and wants to take the game to a much better place and be part of those solutions um, rather than turning his back and saying this is somebody else's problem to take care of. Yeah, no doubt. Um, thank you so much for everyone who joined us and who will be listening to this going forward. Uh, I'm damn proud of uh, the conversation that we just had here. Um, and I think Lynn Reimer's got this right. Everyone in the chat should share this show on their socials, not just k and I'm sure we all know someone who needs to hear Sheldon. I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, I, I, I hope that this is heard loud and wide i know that these uh, uh long form shows aren't consumed quite as heavily as our post game shows but uh if you would do us the honor uh of sharing these in your social circles uh everyone who's listening to this after the fact if you would do us that same honor try and get us out get this out there uh sheldon kennedy saves lives with his message with his message and uh we feel this is just the kind of message that people need to have heard out there thank you so much for joining us everybody uh game day tonight jets play the uh the new jersey devils and we got a guy who's going to be on the scene to talk about it after the game so perfect going to be great to talk to you tonight ken Hope to see everybody there tonight. Uh, we will see you after the game.